Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, where this morning we are going to be looking together at verses 21 through 28. Mark, chapter 1, 21 through 28, and you can find that passage on page 980 in your pew Bibles. As I've mentioned to you several times now in this series on the gospel according to Mark, the Christianity and its Christ that we find articulated here in Mark's gospel account are not at all like so much of what passes as Christianity today. In many ways it stands in a stark contrast to it. Mark does not place before you a Jesus who is going to fit according to your own whims and fancies. This is not a mild-mannered, expertly coiffed, clean and pretty Jesus who will appeal to all of your hip, cool and chic sensibilities. He certainly never presents to us here a Jesus that is open to his being defined by your own personal interpretation of him. There is not here in Mark even a hint of the truth as Jesus speaks it, being him, there is none of that here in Mark as Jesus himself speaks the very definition of truth that will allow space for that or for any other truth to be relative to your own well-stated opinions. Jesus is defined in the word of God. And Mark certainly defines him for us here. In fact, I think we have already witnessed in just the prologue of this book that Mark really is not allowing for you to enter into this description at all. And so considering what Mark is doing here, we must ask ourselves that great and nagging question. Is the Jesus that we follow Is the Christianity that we claim as our own, is it the biblical Jesus? Is it biblical Christianity? Is it simply our own version of it? Or is it in line with what we find Mark writing here in this book bearing his name? Writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark wants to tell us about it. And so, beloved, as we look at Mark, we have to ask ourselves where it is that we stand. I spoke to you just a couple of weeks ago from our confessions. We certainly know where they stand. They are in wholehearted agreement here with Mark. So the question is, where do we stand? Do we ascribe to a Christianity that has at its center the most high majesty of myself? Or are we listening to Mark, who very clearly has placed Jesus at the epicenter of everything? He is the subject of the law and the prophets. The tabernacle and the temple existed to point God's people towards him in anticipation. He is the substance of every single shadow that exists in the word of God. And Mark desperately wants us to see him here. This is not just another man. 
This is not another man to simply emulate in the hopes of being at least half the man he was. This is not just another example of how you should strive to be at least as moral as he was. This is not just another teacher, which we're going to discuss here in just a moment. This is not just another scribe or Pharisee. No, beloved, Mark is going to great lengths here to show you that what we have in Jesus is the King. This is King Jesus. Not just another king and an exceptionally long succession of kings. This is the king of kings. This is King Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah to come from the line of David to rule and to reign for eternity. This is most certainly not just another guru offering you wise little nuggets of wisdom and proverbs for you to shape your life by. This is is the king. And he so invades your life that your own struggle for supremacy ends. You have no resistance to offer that can or will thwart the will of this sovereign king. He states, he declares, he commands, and his people follow. They submit. They obey to the glory of God. And beloved, we have to see that here. This is no ordinary man. This is the king coming exactly, precisely at his time, in his place, bringing with him the message of his kingdom. The life-giving, life-sustaining gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, we should rejoice to meet him here in the gospel according to Mark. And so I want to ask you at the outset this morning, do you rejoice? Is that why you're here this morning, to see this king and fall down before him in joyful worship, to sing his praises, to celebrate his work, to be thankful that Almighty God has done all of this for us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Beloved, I pray that's why we're here. Because if you have come for that lofty purpose this morning, then Mark absolutely will blow your mind as he unveils before your eyes this very Jesus. The Jesus who came to save and to sanctify and to reign over your life. To restore you to a right relationship to the Father. To redeem your life and defeat sin, death, and the devil for you, his subject. To give you life and life eternal. To light your path home into eternity. To feed you with his precious word. To glorify you. And if you've not come here for that this morning, have no fear because Mark's narrative still has something for you. The message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will leave no one unaffected. It brings something to the one who has rejected it, hated it, and even despised it in all of its simplicity. It has something for the one who is content to change it, to make it more about me and what I like and what I want 
and what I will demand. The one who increases the scope of the law when judging a brother or sister, and of course lessens it when judging themselves. It has something for you too. Disgust, discomfort, anger, rage perhaps. Certainly a loveless life, a joyless life. At least one where you can love no one except yourself. It contains for you a very real, very dire sense of hopelessness. Lostness. Beloved, Mark will not leave you to your own opinions on these things. What he presents to us is the truth, and indeed it is the whole truth, and the truth does not change. It is static, and it is stable. It is eternal. And when confronted with it, we see that it is us, it is we that need the change. It is you and I that need a perspective adjustment. So we begin asking, how do we see this king? Is there anything more important to us than him? I say all of this this morning to tell you, as we dig into what I think is a very misunderstood text, that Mark is certainly going to show you King Jesus. And he will either be your only comfort in life and in death, or he is going to make you extraordinarily uncomfortable. It's going to be one or the other. And where you fall on that will speak volumes to you about the Christ and the Christianity in which you are placing your own hopes this morning. And if you're on the wrong side, then I pray that God in His mercy will lead you to the joy of repentance. So let us go ahead now and dig into God's Word this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read from God's holy and errant and infallible Word, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. When the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately... His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. We ask, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. 
And that we would be able to give our full undivided attention to your word this morning so that hearing your word, we would be transformed by that word through the power of your spirit for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you at the outset this morning, I honestly believe that this really is one of those passages that we often read or that we maybe even hear in passing. And giving it truly very little thought, we quickly think that we know or that we have a pretty good grip on what it is exactly that's going on here. We hear this little story and we think, oh yeah, the people, the people of the synagogue. They're astounded by Jesus' wisdom as he teaches them. They're moved into a sort of excited anticipation as this controversial new teacher rises up in their ranks to speak, and they're eager to hear him. They're intrigued by him. They're sort of like, they sort of like the awkwardness of the whole scene. And of course, we have this demon, right? And he's enraged. He cannot tolerate the presence of Jesus and so he lashes out at Jesus and the people who are, you know, always up for a good fight. Well, they just can't get enough of it. Of course we know, beloved, there are small elements of truth in that. There usually is an error when it comes to Scripture. However, I believe that none of that is actually the point here. Remember, Mark is not focused on the people themselves here. There's a reason that Mark doesn't tell you all of their inner dialogue. He does not give to you great, vivid details here regarding what was being said as these things transpired. He does not give to you the names and the titles of those who are present. And he's equally not really focused upon this demon. As much as everyone would love to dive into the supernatural and right into the miracles in Jesus' ministry and just sort of live there, that too is not Mark's focus here. Beloved, his focus has not changed. He is still showing you the king and his kingdom. This is King Jesus. That's the context you you will remember that we are in even now in this book. This is the revealed Christ. This is the, the King of Kings. And Mark does not want for you to take your eyes off of him. He's at the center of the story. It's all about him. It's about his power. It's about his reign. It is about his invasion of this synagogue here in Galilee. Remember, this is about his time, his place, and his message of his kingdom. It's about his supreme authority. It's his kingdom. It's about his holiness. It's him alone that is holy. And whenever the holy comes into direct contact with what is not holy, we see that there is always a disturbance. We need to remember that here. The first thing that I think that we must see here is that there is a disturbance as Jesus enters the synagogue. 
He enters this synagogue and the very atmosphere of the place changes. It's a disturbance. Do you see that here? Do you understand why that is something different than what I said is so often the focus when looking at this passage? Why do you think it matters so much? I want to tell you that if you will pause to consider it, there is something that truly ought to be very sobering to us as the church of Jesus Christ going on here in this Capernaum synagogue. So we have to ask those questions. Why the disturbance? We have to consider it. The people are gathered in their synagogue just as they are gathered every single Sabbath day. They come to hear the word of God and to take in the teaching of the scribes. And on a regular day, I would imagine that it's a very comfortable atmosphere. Not much different from what you or I would expect. They know one another in this community. They're familiar with one another. Their children are being married to one another's children. They perhaps collectively enjoy the place itself where they meet. They even think that they enjoy the occasion that is bringing them all together. They enjoy their own version of peace together. And then this Jesus rises to teach and immediately... There's a disturbance. And that's what Mark is describing here, and we must see it. The perceived peace in this place is broken. The murmuring begins in earnest. It's not the sort of supernatural disturbance that is just jolting or or shocking. Jesus is not turning the laws of nature around here as he begins to teach. This is not fire coming from the altar or anything like that kind of disturbance. It is just that the word of God himself stands up and begins to speak the truth And the people are immediately uncomfortable with the whole scene. They are immediately bothered by it. And we have to see it. Mark says that the people were astonished. That English translation can be a little bit misleading. It does not really do the Greek here any justice. If you know any Greek and you've looked at this word, you know that the word that's being translated here in the New King James Version as astonished is ekplesa. It literally means to strike out or to strike with panic. The people were not amazed in the sense of, oh, isn't this just such a wonderful teaching? That's not what's going on here. They were shocked. They were taken back. They were panicked. They were troubled to their cores by what they heard. You understand, they're troubled by it. They were made to be uncomfortable by it. 
They were disturbed as Jesus began to teach them the truth. Why? Why would it be disturbing? Why such surprise? Why such astonishment? Such panic over the teaching and the teacher? Well, Mark tells us. It's because he does not teach them like the scribes. But he speaks with authority. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, certainly the scribes had authority invested in them to do the things that they did. It was a recognizable authority. They spoke on account of having been taught and having been instructed in the scriptures from very early on in their lives. So when the crowd here, deeply troubled, even in panic, says that Jesus speaks with authority that is unlike the authority of the scribes, what are they saying? Beloved, they're saying that Jesus is not speaking of these things as one who has simply been taught them. He's speaking as one who is them. You understand? We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught as the supreme authority on the law law of God precisely because He and He alone was the very fulfillment of the law of God. You have heard that it was said by those of old, the perceived authority. But I say to you, the ultimate authority. That's what he's doing here. He is standing up and he is speaking as the word of God himself. There is no higher authority. There is no measurement system to adequately ascertain the level of his authority to do so. He is the authority. He is directly challenging them with his kingly authority and they are uncomfortable with it. And notice Mark does not even tell us what his teaching is. He just mentions their discomfort with him and with his message. It's interesting, isn't it? Why would these people gathered for worship be so uncomfortable with the words of the one that they feign to worship? The one who's claiming to be God incarnate. I think we can safely say that these people lived under what we would have to call a very false sense of security. The scribes taught them as the, the scribes taught them the right formulations for righteousness in their eyes, and that was all that they needed. They had taught them legalism and formalism. They had comforted them with the list of acceptable deeds. They had taken the holy law of God and they had diminished it into a system of merit that quite simply stated that they did not that stated that they did not need redemption they did not need a sovereign god they certainly did not need a substitutionary atonement they did not need nor want this jesus They were far too easily satisfied in mere moralistic religion and being content in their own ignorance. Everything was simply great until Jesus started showing up with his gospel. 
They were content to remain blissfully ignorant. And Jesus is having none of it. And as he rises to teach, he pulls back the veil ever so slightly. He reveals himself to them in a way that they come into direct contact with the Holy One of God and they are rightly terrified. They are panicked. They look around frantically at one another wondering what they could do about it. They were fine with the scribe's message of piety. They were comfortable in their traditions and their overly romanticized version of their own history. And along comes this Jesus, and now the synagogue finds itself in a state of disturbance. It is an uncomfortable place to be. They are being challenged. They're being called to repentance. And they do not like it. They had been comfortable there. And just look at the degree of their comfort in the status quo. Mark tells us just how complacent this whole place really was. Do you see it? There is a devil in the pews. A demon. Have you ever considered that? We have to think through it. A demon is content in this place. It is finally, amid this disturbance to their so-called peace, it is a demon that finally says something to Jesus. This man who we find is possessed by an evil spirit or an unclean spirit, a demon, is a member of this synagogue. No one's even aware of the demon's presence. He has been right at home in this congregation. Relaxing, taking it all in, watching as the scribes led people away from the culmination of the promise of God towards self-sufficiency and nothingness. Watching as they all cried together, peace, peace, where there was no peace. It was not until now that the demon ever even felt a need to speak. Every time I read this, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who had to deal with something similar and I don't not in that it was a demon that was confronting him I don't mean it that way but in the middle of his sermon at church with the gathered people of God in the middle of his sermon this guy stood up in the congregation and began to charge him out loud speaking over him with being an unfaithful shepherd and leading the flock to their destruction My friend described it as the most horribly awkward, uncomfortable moment of his life. People were visibly shook up as this guy just stood up and began to shout out false accusations against his preaching and his character. I want you to understand what Mark is describing here, though. It's much worse than that. This demon finally feels the need to disrupt Jesus. And I want you to look and to think about what he says as he speaks up for these people. Look at what he says. 
Let us alone. Leave us be. Get away from us. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon speaks, and you will note that he does not say, What do you have to do with me? What have you to do with us? I know that many commentators have tried to make the case that this demon is actually speaking of other demons and of the realm of Satan. It makes us all feel a little bit better about ourselves, right? It's not true. It sounds to me like he's speaking of his congregation, those he's gathered with. What do you have to do with us? Leave us be. There's nothing for you here, unless, of course, you're here to destroy us. Because I know who you are. You're God incarnate. It's sobering, isn't it? I want want you to understand, this is the church. This is where all the good Israelites in Capernaum are going on the Sabbath day. And it is a demon who speaks for them and says, what business do you have with us, King Jesus? You notice that the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. Peter himself did not give this clear of a revelation of who Jesus was. The demon certainly knows this is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of Almighty God, the Son of God, God in the flesh, The demon knows. This is the Holy One. This is the King. And he looks around this congregation of people who had been lulled to sleep by the message of the scribes, those who have traded their precious promise for a system of meaninglessness, those who had been content with far, far too little, and he looks to the Lord of promise, the culmination of the promise, and he says, look around. There's no one for you here. I want to make just a couple of quick observations about this and then we'll move on to an application for us this morning. First, you will notice something here about this demon. This demon knows Jesus. He knows him. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he has come to do. He knows. And knowing is not saving faith. That's why there's no boasting and saving faith. This is not just knowing and deducing from that knowledge. Faith is supernatural where it not only opens our minds and our eyes to the truth and to knowledge, but through that knowledge we come to a place where we trust in Jesus Christ for everything that we could ever need. He is our righteousness. Not only did he take my sin to the cross and pay for it there forever, but he also gives to me his righteousness, and it is as if all of the obedience which Jesus Christ himself accomplished were my very own obedience. It's much more than just knowing about this Jesus. Knowledge without God-given faith is trivial. Jesus Christ has been revealed to this demon, but you see that the demon is not running to Jesus. 
He's not embracing redemption in him. He's not looking for atonement. He's simply pleading with him to just leave. Do you see that here? Listen to me, beloved. This congregation here in Capernaum, don't fool yourself. They know stuff. They know stuff. They've been taught. They think that they know the law. They know enough that on the Sabbath day, they are in the synagogue. They know exactly how to go through the motions. They know it so well. And the demon is perfectly comfortable sitting in their midst. He's been content there. Why? Why is a devil content in this group of worshipers of the Most High God? Well, it's because the devil delights in things that are not Jesus being the thing that defines the group. He loves, he celebrates, he cherishes legalism, formalism, traditionalism, and all superficial nonsense. Because it keeps the people running towards other lesser comforts. The devil was content in the pew because what they had going on there was merely the husk of religion. And God hates it. Jesus spent much of his earthly ministry throwing it down. All the shadows with none of the substance. I heard one pastor say that this is the kind of Christianity that views worship like it does paying taxes. I did what was expected of me. I showed up. I bowed my head. I was employed in the singing of songs. I paid the price. Now it is God who owes me. He will leave me be now. The rest of my life is mine. Like all of legalism, it lessens the demands of God's law and it finds comfort in something much, much less than the righteousness that God's law demands. Perfect righteousness. The other side note here that I think we should at least take notice of is that this this points to the ultimate victory that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and His bride united to Him by faith. Do you see that here? This demon knows exactly what is up. Have you ever thought about that? He is powerless to affect Jesus. There's no fight in him. Jesus is clearly in charge. This is the king of kings. He knows that Jesus can throw him out of the likes of this group. He knows that he can speak a word and expect obedience from every single area of the creation that he himself spoke into being. He knows that the one standing in front of this synagogue this day is almighty, holy, God incarnate. And Satan has absolutely no chance in this war. And this demon knows it. The time was at hand. The king had now come, carrying with him the life-giving, life-restoring message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message goes out, and the people of God and the enemies of God 
are exposed in their collective responses. God is not interested in you're merely transforming your external behavior as a means of somehow placing Him in your debt. God will have your heart. And then He will bring Himself himself glory in and through your life. But He will have your heart. He will not fail to claim what is His. And Satan and all of his demons know it. And they are powerless to do anything about it. Because Jesus is the victor. And He always has been. This is the seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent just as God said He would in Genesis 3. And the seed of the serpent knows exactly who this is and he can do absolutely nothing to stop him. He merely pleads, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? Leave us. This is a picture of the power and the majesty and the authority and the unrivaled reign of our King. Do you see it here? Beloved, I want to close with an application. I trust that you have thought or even as we have been talking this morning about these things that you are thinking through the implications for the church. Do you ever do that? I do. In fact, I must. I'm called to shepherd this flock, so I have to constantly ask these kinds of disturbing questions of us. What if Jesus were to stand up in this congregation and teach? Would we recognize him? Or perhaps an even tougher question, would demons be content here? Are we more interested in all of the things surrounding and sort of swirling around Christianity and the so-called good life than we are with, say, actually loving our neighbor as ourselves. I have to wonder about these things, right? One of the things that I dislike about the Reformed Church, and I know that I'm more than likely stepping on toes here, I have to, not necessarily the RCUS, so please nobody start looking for the guy I'm calling out. It's not what I'm doing. But those who claim to love the doctrines of grace and the great confessions of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we all subscribe to. I found some of them, certainly not all of them, but some of them at times to be the most bullheaded, argumentative, combative, angry, self-assured people that I know. And it breaks my heart. Because, beloved... It ought not be. The fruit of the gospel of King Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. What fruit do you think others see in us? It's an important question. Though I'm equally certain it is an annoying question question creates a disturbance I don't care about that because we must ask it 
is this a loving place? Is this a place where Jesus Christ is truly at the center of all that we do? Is this a place where Jesus could show up this morning and we could celebrate his precious, majestic authority as our king? who's reigning mercifully over our lives? Or is it a place where we, in our fears, would begin to grumble and complain and lash out? Where we would take matters into our own hands and justify our hatred of all things not like me? Beloved, it's a question we must ask. Do, why do we do the things we do? I want you to hear me this morning. You cannot justify being anything less than loving. You can't. Not according to the Word of God. You cannot justify being self-serving. This is supposed to be the place where self comes to die. It dies here. And life is mercifully given in Jesus Christ. No one ought to ever find themselves hurt. We need to ask ourselves, what are we fighting for and why are we fighting for it? I want to tell you, the devil should never come here and make himself at home in these pews. The message should force him into the light. The love that the people genuinely and outwardly show one another ought to make him miserable as he is continually reminded of the presence of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. So look around. Do you think you get to pick and choose who you love? Or having been measured by the holy law of God and found absolutely wanting, having been mercifully propelled towards Jesus Christ and His person and His work, having embraced Him and redemption in Him by faith, can you do nothing else than show your mercy to your fellow wretches? To sinners saved by grace just like you? Listen, you stand above no one here. We all stand beneath Jesus. We're all in the same place, standing beneath Jesus, embracing Him as our glorious head, as the King of kings, the one who reigns and rules over all of our lives. We're subjects of His kingdom. We're not nobility. And beloved, that's authentic biblical Christianity. According to the gospel, according to Mark, according to the word of God. Are you content this morning with something less than that? It's a call to look at your life. The gospel will expose you to your need or drive you deeper into your wants. But only one of those will ever save you to the glory of Almighty God. Only one of those is part of being a subject of this glorious King and this glorious Kingdom. Will we settle for something less than that? Let's pray.